Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible founder. You know, she's done it multiple times. Uh, and we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear. In this case, you know, like we're going to be talking about the cycles, the relationships, you know, with with investors. Also, what are the absolute musts when you when you think about fundraising? Uh, also, how to be a remote first company and many other good things that I'm sure are going to inspire you all. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Elizabeth Salman. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. So originally you were born in Texas and raised in Boston. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Well, I don't remember Dallas because we left when I was three um, and I made pit stops in Florida and New Jersey. You can hear my accent with Florida. Uh, we ended up in Boston though. And I, I don't know, I kind of I liked it west of Boston. So fields and reservoirs and places to frolic as a child. So eventually on your end, you studied math and science. You know, that's kind of like the path that you ended up in. So what, what attracted you about resolving problems and, and things like that? I was bored in high school and Massachusetts had come out with its first math and uh, science charter school. It was held at WPI, Worcester Polytech in, in Worcester, Mass. And so high school students, they would pluck out at the end of 10th grade and put them in the school and you spent 11th grade learning math and science and 12th grade at WPI. So you graduated with a year of college credit. Um, and so I'm going to age myself for a second. So I was from 42. So in 1996, when I started school, I was learning C++. And it was, uh, it was just a crazy thing to do at that time. So you actually went to, you ended up going to Miguel and uh, you studied there economics and uh, also Jewish studies. And Basically, you started your first company while you were there. So mm -hmm. how did that come about? Well, I couldn't get a work visa because I was an American in Canada and I needed some money. My parents were like, you decided to go to Canada. You can fend for yourself. So I started a consignment business on eBay. I would scour uh, department stores on sale or even eBay itself when somebody would list something and they didn't understand the value of what they had and then flip it and sell high. And, and that was my spending money for for two and a half years. Now, this was your first, um, you know, glimpse at entrepreneurship, right? And as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. Now, in your case, what you did is you actually went to work for another company. So uh, walk us through that thought process of, okay, here you are, you know, you put yourself through school, you know, you were generating your own money and then you graduate and then you decide to work for somebody else. What, what were you thinking, Liz? I don't know. Guilty as charged. <laughs> I needed more money. <laughs> so you were there for quite a bit. So I guess what were, you know, some of the lessons, you know, that you learned during those four years and what, what, what did you need to feel at, at, at peace with, you know, taking the leap of faith, you know, again? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I was employee number seven there and I stayed until there were probably a few hundred. They ultimately got acquired and then by a public company, I think for just under a billion dollars, it was called Dutomi. So I was an account manager and account management in ad tech is not sales. It's essentially customer success and software. Um, I was an analyst. 
Um, I became a, a SQL developer actually while I was there and a, a product manager for real-time bidding when it came out as a product. And so I got to touch everything. I worked for somebody who was a mentor who was the, the chief analytics officer there. And he, he allowed me to go and, and play with a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and that was a gift. And so maybe three years into it with somebody I had worked with there who had quit and gone on to work at another startup, we were both sort of bored and, and we were like, we think we can do better. Um, at the time, AdTech was predominant, predominantly on desktops and laptops and iPhones, I think it was, I don't know, third generation or something at that point, HTML5 had just come out and we thought we could take what this company was doing and translate it into mobile and and why not? So we we wrote an MVP for a year and then I quit my job and I drove from, I was in Chicago at the time and I drove to my Back to Boston, I slept on my co-founder's floor on an air mattress for a month. Um, and then I finally found an apartment and we both just dwindled down our savings for, I don't know, a year and a half. I probably went through like $40,000 in savings. And then we raised enough money from friends and family to start paying ourselves something that was large enough to buy macaroni and cheese. My <laughs> God, I mean, that sounds like a, like a tremendous, you know, obviously now you're you're reflecting on it, but I'm sure that a lot of people that are that are listening, you know, many of them are going to resonate and it's going to bring some memories because as, as founders, you know, we've we've all gone through that. But but also, I guess, at what point do you realize as part of the experience with Media Armor, which was the, the name of the company that you were building there, at what point do you realize, I think that I made the right decision of, you know, risking it all, sleeping on, on this mattress for a month and and you know that the risk is is now paying off. So the risk for me, let's assume I fail for a moment. Yeah. If I fail, what am I going to do for work? I'm going to go get a job as a SQL developer and I'm going to be able to pay the bills and it's going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. Um, but it was so enthralling to wake up every morning and to essentially birth something from nothing, right? Pure creation. Can I get the sale? How charismatic can I be on the phone? What's working? What's not working? Um, I've never experienced anything more. It's I have. I did a second company, um, but it's the most powerful. There are very few powerful things I've experienced. One is watching somebody die. Birthing something from nothing um, is is another one in a startup, and it's like a drug. Now, in this case, for the people that are listening to get it, what were you guys doing at Media Armor? What what ended up being the business model? Uh, the business model ended up being selling ads actually. So it wasn't software ad tech at that point it was ad sales. Um, it wasn't until I think trade desk actually in ad tech was the first company that decided to pivot from ad sales to software. Um, and so we were selling ads and it was essentially a, a profile of a consumer. So we knew who somebody was on phone and, and tablet and desktop. And then we also knew when you walked into a store and purchased. So we tied everything together through email address and we would get the the house files from the advertisers themselves. And then we could show you an ad on your tablet based upon the fact that you just made an in-store purchase. today. And the company ended up being acquired. So, hey, you know, like what an amazing outcome, no? Uh, because an exit, always an exit. So in this case, the acquirer was Nomi. So how mm -hmm. did the acquisition come about? Uh, Nomi at the time was, uh, their tagline was retail analytics for the physical world. So typically they were trying to reinvent a, an industry called door counting, right? You walk into a store and you hear a chime go off and they counted you. So they would deploy Wi-Fi sensors and Bluetooth beacons in stores 
and track your like literal physical path to purchase through the store based upon the proximity of your phone to these sensors. And so they thought, well, we take the physical imprint and we marry it with Media Armor's digital imprint. And we used to joke that we had the uh, the Death Star. Now, in this case, hey, I mean, obviously different times too, because right before the acquisition, I mean, you guys had uh, raised, you know, I, I believe it was like 2 million bucks. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure that the venture space was a little bit different from where it is today, you know, especially back then, you know, when you guys were raised this money, I mean, it was about 2010 or so. And I remember at that point, the ecosystem in New York was, was still developing. So I guess like, what, what was it like, you know, to, to, to be raising money, you know, during that time in, in New York? It was really, it was really hard. Um, it was hard to get in touch with people. So when we went out for our first round, for our, our seed round, uh, we failed and we ended up just doing friends and family. I couldn't get any institutional funds to pay attention given the traction that we had. And I knew people in this space, right? The, the person that I worked with, that the person that I worked that hired me into Jatomi, the ad tech company, was one of the founders of ICQ. Like that is a major success story when AOL acquired it. And he couldn't introduce me anywhere. Um, and so we went back to the drawing board. We sold. We had some some revenue coming in the door. We had some big customers like, like The Gap, for example. Um, and then we went back out. And so a Series A at, in 2012, I believe it was, took me nine months to raise. And it was a million and a half dollars. And that round was led by Craycroft and Inovia. That's incredible. So obviously, you know, incredible outcome as well. You know, you had the exit happening there with Nomi, as we were talking about. And then you did the vesting and resting, as they say it. You know, some people rest more than others. But in your case, it only took 11 months for you to realize that you got you had to go back at it again. So uh, how was that experience of doing that integration? And then also, you know, what was it like, you know, to to say, hey, you know what? It's time to go at it again with strong DM. Well, I was lucky actually. So my lockup was only was only a year. Um, and I got out with a double trigger after 10 months. And I was so grateful to have those two months of my life back. So while I was resting investing, I ended up starting to ideate with actually somebody I went to high school with at the the charter school I mentioned, and the head of marketing at Nomi who wanted uh, who wanted to be a founder. And so we would meet once a week and we would brainstorm ideas and um, throw them in a spreadsheet and debate them. Um, and then ultimately decided that it was that it was time to go to go and raise for the idea. And how do you how do you go about validating those ideas, brainstorming about those ideas to make sure that you end up pushing with one that has legs? Because, I mean, that's that's not an easy thing to do. And I'm sure, you know, there was like a, 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 a quite a lot of thinking and a process behind that. There was, and I think figuring out an idea is similar to product development, right? Should I build this feature? Will somebody pay at least $1 for the the feature of the product? So we had an idea based upon our personal experience. It was the company ended up pivoting, but originally it was data quality. So why is it that we only find out that a piece of information is good or bad once it's in a spreadsheet? Why can't we catch it much earlier upstream in the in the processing pipeline? So, for example, if I look at a zip code, a U.S. zip code, it should have five digits. If it has a, a letter in it, perhaps it's a Canadian postal code. Why is it in there in the first place? Um, and so we knew from experience that, or we suspected from experience that it was a market and we called around and got it validated. And we can come back to that point because we did pivot. Um, 
But because I had successfully raised before from well-known names and because I had gotten something over the finish line, it was fairly easy to raise on at the time a few Envision mock-ups and an idea. The team looked good. The future products looked good. The idea looked good. The founders were good. So then in this case, we strong DM. You know, how did it look like when you were assembling the team around you? Because, I mean, at this point, you had already experience uh, building and scaling companies. So and also successful companies that had a, an outcome. So how did you go about building the team around you as well? Yeah, we so it was three co-founders for a pretty long time until we knew that we had a product that would sell. So I mentioned that we pivoted about nine months and we were unsuccessful at selling this data quality product. We threw it out and started testing ideas again, throwing them against a wall, seeing if we could if we could sell something. I mean, I think it was the fourth or fifth idea that stuck and ended up being a an access management tool for, for servers and databases and Kubernetes clusters. So technical staff needed access to infrastructure. You went to StrongDM, you didn't issue an SSH key or a database credential. Um, and once we were, we really knew the shape of what we were building and we could see the first few customers, we hired one engineer in and then a second and third, and we built the team slowly. We were eight people probably until we were at least a million in ARR. We took our time to make sure that we we had the go-to-market motion down before we decided to expand. So you did, obviously, those, uh, as, you, as you were saying, you know, you had to pivot, you had to uh, get it right. At what point do you realize you've hit a nerve and you got product market fit? What did that look like? We sold something like 30 copies. Thirty. We had 30 sales in three weeks at, at a minimum, which at the time was $500 a month. Um, it, it just it just took off. People wanted it on the end of the phone calls, and then they put their credit card down. So my proxy for success for for building anything is: Will somebody pay at least one dollar for this thing? And if they won't, you don't have something, or they're not the right customer uh, for you. Um, it was founders ask me that all the time. They're like, "But how do you know if you have product market fit? You just feel it. You can feel something shift, and you know you've got it." So. Uh... I guess, you know, for the people listening, what ended up being the business model with StrongDM? How are you guys making money? We price per user per month. Uh, when we started pricing, it was $50 per user per month, minimum $50. And then we just started raising prices from there. Um, the thing, founders always are like, you can always raise prices, right? So I always start and then just start inching it up um, every month. We also did something that was... Uh, totally opposite the rest of the SaaS industry. So I knew a CEO buying software. I used to get so upset at those, all those dots right on a page and you've got like starter team and enterprise call for details. And you've got like, like SSO only available for enterprise. And I, I felt like I was getting just nickel and dimed on everything. And I hated how that felt from a buyer perspective. So we just made it one price fits all. You get every protocol in your stack. You get as much throughput as you want. You can push as many logs into storage as you want. It's one price fits all. So we tried to make it easy. And I think that was an advantage very early on. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept 
really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. You know, going back to the team, because the way that you guys build this, you know, I think the remote, you know, component was a strong one. Uh, and I think that probably it served very well the company, you know, given some of the uh, events that we encounter with COVID. So mm -hmm. how did you guys think about the remote aspect, because when you got, you know, started, it was 2015. It was not as uh, trendy as it is today, which is a must, you know, offering employees, you know, the remote uh, option, you know, not all the time, but at least, you know, part of the time. So how did you guys go about this and also establishing it in a way that was successful to really make sure that the, that the culture was there? So um, two co-founders were on the East Coast when we started. Uh, two of us were in New York and one was in San Francisco. And so as we were iterating, we knew we had to be remote first by by default. And so this decision was actually made in 2014, even before we incorporated in 2015. And it was a major advantage in, in recruiting and especially for engineering talent, because in New York and San Francisco, you're fighting for top talent. You're paying crazy amounts of money, right? But we could go into less populous places, pay less, find talent that was hiding. In fact, our um, the person who ended up essentially being the, the principal architect, we found him in Amsterdam. Um, he was a game developer. And so it set us free in many ways. Now, of course, COVID hit. And so we were ready for it. There was no blip in, our, in, in how we worked. Um, but then, of course, it it was no longer an advantage in recruiting a few months into COVID because everybody realigned their business model. And then I guess, hey, as part of the journey to, you know, when do you realize, you know, that it's time to hire salespeople, you know, whether it's on other companies that uh, led you to really understand that to implement it as well on strong DM? Uh, it's, a, it's a real question. And this is, um, so in, in the book that I wrote, it's, um, it is a major point of tension between me and the investor with, with whom I co-wrote. So VCs throughout my career have said, it's time to hire salespeople, hire salespeople, salespeople will help you figure out the sales. Salespeople are really good at selling. I believe that if the founder cannot figure out how to do something, the founder is dead in the water on that topic. People are really good at their jobs, but most people are not good at figuring out how to go from zero to one. That is actually why founders exist, because we are good at birthing something from nothing. And so to ask an AE who's only ever gone from one to two or two to three to come in and say, hey, can you write my demo for me? It doesn't work. And so we waited to hire 
until we were certain we had a playbook. I used to put up a um a slide in my board meetings and it represented uh my my sales funnel. So it was getting people to raise their hand was the first one. And then it was first first demo, second call, POC, you know, contract, conversion, expansion, retention. And I would do a traffic light for every single one of those words. Things were green, yellow, or red. And everything started as red. But once it started to turn to yellow, we knew it was time to hire because we knew that by the time somebody came in to be a prospector, right, to get somebody to raise their hand successfully, I could hand them the exact combination of words in the exact places they needed to put those words in order to get somebody to agree to a demo. Anything outside of that, the founder, in my opinion, is not doing their job. Now, the flip side of that is that you might wait too long to hire salespeople or too long to hire sales engineers if you don't want to let go. But I would rather not burn through two or three sales teams figuring out that they can't help me figure out how to sell, that they can just sell. Now, with Strong DM, you also raised quite a bit of money. How much mm -hmm. uh, capital did you raise for Strong DM? And what was the um, what was the experience like going from one cycle to the next? It was about 80 million. So across the time, uh, our pre-seed was led by Bloomberg Beta and Data Collective. And then True Ventures came in. And then Sequoia uh, led our Series A. And Doug Leone joined our board. And then the B was uh, Tiger, John Curtius, and, um, and Eric Nordlander. And what, what, what is it like to be on a board with these uh, legends? What is that like? Look, they're, they're all amazing, right? They, they have, I mean, True has how many funds at this point? Well over a billion under management, for example. These guys have seen everything. They've done everything. They're excellent at pattern matching. They have very large brains. Um, and that's stuff that I have never been exposed to and, and can be very helpful at times. That's incredible. Now. For you, the time came to step down uh, of the company as the CEO. And uh, basically, you know, um, there's a book that you wrote that is coming out. And uh, very, very, actually, like quite a, a, a very interesting topic, topic for our audience. So what is the name of the book and how did the idea of the book come to mind? It's called Founder versus Investor, The Honest Truth About Venture Capital from Startup to IPO. It is co-written with a friend and investor, Jerry Newman, who's a prolific seed stage investor in New York City. Um, and it came to be that uh, maybe a year and a half ago, Jerry, Jerry has a blog called Reaction Wheel. He writes two or three times a year. And he put out a blog post called your board of directors is probably going to fire you. And it was based on a recent experience he had had and he was upset and it wasn't pro investor and it wasn't pro founder. It was these things happen and this thing just happened to me and I want to talk about it. And why don't we ever talk about it? And VCs called him up and said, what do you think you're doing? If you talk about this, you're going to ruin our chances of, of getting to invest in founders because we need to appear founder friendly. And he said, but it's true. Over 50% of founders are fired. Why are we hiding this fact? And then founders called him and said, I can't believe that somebody is actually talking about this. And so I read the post and I said, why don't more people talk about it? Um, and he agreed to co-author the book with me uh, with the understanding that he wasn't going to agree with me on stuff. 
So he fully represents the investor point of view, and I fully represent the founder point of view as we talk through the tensions in the relationship that shift over the course of a company's life cycle, fundraising, terms, growth, exits. And our, our goal is to lay bare the motivations of each side so that we can do a better job of understanding each other. I don't think everybody's going to get along and sing Kumbaya, right? But I can tell you that I now have greater empathy for certain things that that VCs have to deal with on a day-to-day basis that I wasn't aware of. And Jerry certainly has empathy for, for things on my side of the table as well. And how do those tensions shift as you go from one cycle to the next with the company? Oh, they shift in so many ways. So so let's take an example of, you know, you start you start as a company, you raise the money of an incredibly quote unquote founder friendly pre-seed or seed fund that's that's backing you. They're there, they're helping you think through things. Let's say you find product market fit. Let's say you suddenly now have a few million in ARR, you become something that's a phone call every few weeks, checking in, seeing if an investor can help with anything to, oh, wow, this company has figured something out. And this could actually be a fund returner. And I see the path that it would take for this company to be a fund returner. So I'm now going to lean in some more. And I'm now going to push for more financing because the company's ready for it. And so the company at that point isn't just the founder anymore. It's a real company. And so tensions can arise there, for example, where a founder may not grow into the operator, want to, or even be able to grow into the operator they need to be. Investors can be real heavy-handed and sort of demanding if you have a particularly unruly board. Uh, Founders can lose control. They might not have understood the implication of certain terms that were introduced in the Series A that weren't in the seed docs. And like, now it's not three common and two preferred, it's three preferred and they're shit out of luck. Um, and so there are lots of little things that are introduced along the way that become a big thing. And that's when relationships get contentious. Now, when it comes to fundraising, what are the absolute musts when, you know, getting out there and seeking money? Uh, well, the, my, I, have, I have 12 rules of fundraising in the book. It's actually called Liz's Absolutes of Fundraising, Liz AF. Um, The two that I think are personally most provocative, I'll tell you my first one. So I advise to never talk to associates. I have found them highly problematic over my career. The way that I think about associates is similar to software sales, If I'm trying to sell in a product that is a top-down product and needs a top-down mandate, I'm not going to be able to sell it into an individual contributor. Probably not going to be able to sell it into a manager of a team. I've got to go to the CTO. Similarly, associates are only able to say no. They cannot say yes. They literally can't say yes. Maybe one or two funds are, are, are working with some new bottle to make that the case, but the vast majority aren't. And so why would I spend my time talking to somebody who can only reject me? It's like, why would I go on a date with somebody who's not, who I already know at the beginning is probably not going to go on a second date. So that's one. Another provocative one that I personally like is never sending out a deck over email. And it's the same principle. As a founder, I am best visually, I am best with you hearing me. Give me the opportunity to convince you of my idea. Now, I'm a proponent of a video of a demo, like 30-second minute long Loom video is great. But 
I don't want to send you the deck over email because you can just reject it. And so I never do that either. You can't waste, waste, invest 15 minutes of your time with me to listen to me and then politely tell me, no, I didn't want you as my investor in the first place. Everybody has time for 15 minutes. What is the biggest truth that you've learned about venture capital? So venture capitalists do this for a job, right? They do a hundred investments, 200 investments in the course of their career. Um, founders do one or two. And I think that if there were any constant, it is that VCs do not say what's on their mind or they say it really, 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 really gently. And so unless you're a super good mind reader and can really pick up on every single visual cue, you're not actually going to know what they think. And that difference means that you don't actually have a sense, you as the founder of a whole situation, and your job could be at stake, company could be at stake. There's a lot of nuance that goes into these relationships that you don't necessarily see because VCs aren't incentivized to tell them to you. Now, imagine I was to put you into a time machine, Liz, and I bring you back in time to that moment. You know, maybe that moment that you were thinking about perhaps giving your notice uh, to me and, you know, getting started before even you got started with your second company, Media Armor, but they obviously venture-backed company. Let's say you had the opportunity of going back in time and having a chat with that younger Liz and being able to give that younger Liz a piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I would tell her to remember that she has the power in conversations with investors um, and to not lose that confidence even in the, the worst moments possible. I think. The book talks a lot about fear and about the power dynamic between investors and founders. And for years, it's been in the investor side of things. And then in the froth of 2020 and 2021, it, it shifted to the founders. And now it's certainly back in the investor camp. But at the end of the day, founders know their business. They know their business cold. A term sheet is not going to expire on the date that it says if you are negotiating in good faith. And investors don't want to pull a term sheet, for example. And so know that it's okay to slow down and to think thoughtfully about things and take your time on decisions. All of that comes from knowing that you have power and that it's okay to say no and walk away from things. I love that. So Liz, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, the best way to do so is on LinkedIn. Just just Google my name, Elizabeth Zellman, um, or you you can buy the book and tell me how much you love it. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, Liz, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.